This program is brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu. This is David Lang speaking. I'm the Melvin Shim Professor of Law at Duke University Law School. A few months ago, the producers of these podcasts at Suffolk Law School asked me to offer some thoughts about Golan versus Holder, a copyright case then pending in the Supreme Court. Golan involved congressional legislation aimed at restoring foreign works in the public domain to protection under American law. I just published an article on that case, written as the matter was making its way through the labyrinthine processes of the court. I was joined by two co-authors, Risa Weaver and Shive Roxana Reed. Our article appeared in the John Marshall Intellectual Property Law Review at 11 JMRIPL at page 83, and was titled, Golan Beholder, Copyright in the Image of the First Amendment. It seemed then that the case might be something that many listeners to this series would share an interest in. On January 18th of this year, the court reached its decision in that case. Now that it has been decided, I think it's fair to say the case is even more deserving of attention than it appeared to be when it was argued last October. I imagine some of you have read the Supreme Court's opinions in the case and need no close summary. Others may not have had reason or time to do so, however, so let me begin by quickly sketching in the decision in that case. I should perhaps say that some of what I'm about to say I have said before in other quarters. The case has attracted wide notice and with good reason. In essence, a majority of the court in Golan held that Congress was indeed free to withdraw millions of foreign works from the public domain and restore them, as it is sometimes said, to copyright protection under American law. This, according to legislation codified as Section 104A of the Copyright Act of 1976. These were generally works that had fallen into the public domain for failure to comply with American copyright formalities prior to 1989, the date when American adherence to the Berne Convention ended our long-standing insistence on formalities and compliance. Under the Berne Convention, formalities are forbidden. What is more, the Convention contemplates that adhering countries must recognize copyright in foreign works still under foreign copyright for at least the term provided for domestic works. Meanwhile, for those who have relied on the public domain status of the foreign works to create derivative works, for example, or to develop other uses that may have presupposed the availability of those foreign works. There is a one-year grace period in which the derivative works or corresponding uses may continue to be exploited without charge after notice of restoration. But beyond the grace period, these so-called reliance parties must negotiate licenses or else accept a schedule of royalty payments to be determined by a federal court. And if they cannot afford to do so, well then, their continued reliance on the erstwhile public domain status of the restored works must come to an end. The Tenth Circuit had upheld the legislation in a 2010 decision. The Supreme Court granted certiorari in March of 2011 and asked for briefs on two questions. Does restoration violate the copyright clause? Does it violate the First Amendment? Justice Ginsburg delivered the majority opinion for herself and five other members of the court, 
Scalia, Thomas, Roberts, Kennedy, and Sotomayor. Justice Kagan recused herself, having served as Solicitor General when the case first came along. Justice Breyer dissented, joined by Justice Alito. Ginsburg's opinion really addresses in a serious way only one of the two issues the court had indicated it might consider. In 2003, she had examined the copyright clause in Eldred v. Ashcroft, a case in which the Sonny Bono Copyright Term Extension Act of 1998 was challenged insofar as it extended the term of protection for works already under copyright. In Eldred, she had suggested that Congress had wide latitude to deal with copyright policy without encountering constitutional constraints. Ginsburg's opinion in Eldred prompted Justice Stevens, dissenting in that case, to protest that her permissive treatment of the subject would surely mean, as a practical matter, that legislation enacted pursuant to the copyright clause would prove to be effectively beyond judicial review, at least insofar as the clause itself was concerned. Now in Golan, she has held that Congress is similarly free to withdraw works from the public domain, an offense against what one might have imagined to be settled expectations, if not settled law, an offense even more serious than the retrospective term extensions upheld in Eldred. In Golan, as in Eldred, it was the preamble to the copyright clause, which, in so many words, appears to authorize congressional action in order to, quote, promote the progress of science, or human knowledge, end quote, that had led some observers to hope that it offered some substantive constraint against congressional action. In particular, many had thought that it meant that Congress could act only or mainly in order to encourage the creativity of new works. Justice Breyer's opinion in dissent in Golan though considerably more nuanced than what I have just suggested, at least runs in this direction. But, of course, that isn't what the text of the preamble actually says. And after Golan, we are obliged to understand that if the text has any substantive implications at all, they're not limited to the provision of incentives for creativity. They also include, as Ginsburg makes clear, any number of other potential incentives, including ones whose function is to encourage or enable the orderly distribution or exploitation of works already in existence. Indeed, in what is the most startling passage in Ginsburg's opinion, we are allowed to suppose that not only may Congress remove foreign works from the public domain in order to achieve ends other than the creation of new works, at least when those foreign works have not yet had the full term otherwise guaranteed by the Copyright Act, Congress may even imaginably withdraw works from the public domain when their full term of protection has expired. The net effect of the decision in Golan is to free Congress from virtually any constraint that a long-standing student of the law of copyright might once have held to be implicit in the Copyright Clause. In this result, Justice Stevens' prophecy now finds fulfillment. Term limits no longer need be taken seriously. The public domain is no longer beyond the reach of anyone with the political will and power to persuade Congress to encroach upon it. Originality and creativity in copyright have always amounted to little more than a joke. The idea-expression dichotomy is, as Learned Hand said in the last copyright opinion he wrote, 
a line that no one ever has been or ever will be able to determine in advance. And fair use? No one who has ever been drawn into litigation involving fair use can have any very wide confidence in that doctrine as a guide to what may fairly be appropriated from or otherwise used in connection with a work under copyright. To the contrary, in that connection, one is likely to recall Melville Bernard Nimmer's observation that fair use is no more reliable a guide to fairness in appropriation than would be the golden rule. Meanwhile, the First Amendment question that had actually brought Golan to the attention of the copyright community, and almost certainly to the court itself, is given such short shrift in Ginsburg's opinion as to amount, once again, to no real opinion at all. As in Eldred, she channels Justice O'Connor's remarkably silly suggestion in Harper and Row versus The Nation magazine, circa 1986, namely that the framers imagined in 1787 that copyright would be the engine that drives freedom of expression, a freedom which, in fact, of course, the framers did not yet have in mind in 1787, either in the form or substance of the First Amendment, which was not actually ratified in such terms until 1791. And having echoed yet again this daffy piece of utter nonsense, Ginsburg goes on to repeat the other tired mantras of the First Amendment copyright conflict, that is, that copyright has its own twofold built-in safeguards to protect freedom of expression, which are, first, the idea-expression dichotomy, and, second, the fairness doctrine. As a practical matter, the First Amendment gets no serious attention at all in Golan. The result is that copyright, though not formally immune to First Amendment protection, is immune in all but form or so Ginsburg supposes. To be fair about the matter, I must acknowledge that the plaintiffs in Golan did themselves no favor when they conceded that copyright law is content neutral, that is to say, that regulations of general applicability under copyright do not reflect congressional concern for point of view. Under contemporary standards of review, this meant that the First Amendment challenge to the legislation under consideration in Golan was less strict than would have been the case had the plaintiffs insisted, as they certainly could have done, that copyright is content-specific. The matter might have been debated, but it was unquestionably there to be argued, and in my judgment it should have been. But then, in my judgment, the court should have recognized that withdrawing work from the public domain was a serious offense against the First Amendment, no matter how the question of content neutrality might have been addressed. Justices Breyer and Alito saw as much and said so. Their position in the matter might well have commanded a majority and moved the court to a different outcome. Might well have, but did not. My colleague Jeff Powell and I have written a book on the relationship between intellectual property and the First Amendment, published not long ago by the Stanford University Press. I won't attempt to rehearse our arguments here and now. Suffice it to say that in the book we called No Law, Intellectual Property in the Image of an Absolute First Amendment. We offered a serious, and I think it's fair to say, a nuanced account of how copyright and other IP doctrines can survive and flourish in a world that recognizes the First Amendment as paramount. For the moment, however, that is not a world that Ginsburg and the majority give even the slightest evidence of comprehending. I could stop here, I suppose, on this sober note. 
copyright has slipped its moorings after Golan. There is nothing in the Constitution now to constrain it, at least as far as the Supreme Court of the United States is concerned. The world of expression belongs to Congress, which belongs in turn to the MPAA or the RIAA and the copyright industries and the devil take the hindmost. Whether you think this is good or bad depends on how you weigh the benefits of copyright protection against the burdens it places on freedom of expression. And make no mistake, copyright is a system for suppressing expression, fully as much so as it is for encouraging expression. Consider again this language from the government's brief in support of the legislation at issue in Golan. I'm quoting again, the copyright clause, the Solicitor General wrote, differs from other Article I provisions in that the very purpose of copyright protection is to limit the manner in which creative works may be used. The imposition of some restrictions on expressive activity is therefore the intended and inherent effect of every grant of copyright. This language, Justice Ginsburg, restates nearly verbatim in her own opinion in Golan. And so to restate the proposition yet again in the language of the First Amendment as the Solicitor General and Justice Ginsburg and a majority of the court appear to see it, Congress may make some laws abridging freedom of speech or of the press, more or less as Congress may think best. One of those laws is called copyright. As I say, I could stop here, and I might well have were it not for a most remarkable turn of events that took place on the very day when the decision in Golan was handed down. You will perhaps recall how legislation then pending in Congress, called SOPA or PIPA, legislation to curb online piracy, fell victim to an angry and determined backlash mounted by Wikipedia and Google and supported by millions of netizens the result of which was the collapse of those bills in both houses. The sponsors, or at least many of the congressional proponents of the bills, have withdrawn their support. There are no immediate plans to reintroduce them. This is remarkable indeed. In his 1983 Hugo Award-winning short story, Melancholy Elephants, Spider Robinson envisions an America a century hence in which copyright has all but succeeded in destroying creativity. Robinson's protagonist, the widow of a musician and composer who has killed himself in despair, approaches a senior senator whom she hopes to persuade to oppose yet another bill extending the reach of copyright. She knows that the effort will cost her, since in the time Robinson envisions, no public official can be expected to do anything unless the supplicant is willing to pay squeeze, which is what bribes have come to be called. And even at that, she faces a formidable obstacle since the senator she hopes to persuade has already signaled his support for the legislation. As she reflects upon the challenge that lies ahead of her, she is bound to acknowledge that the one thing every politician must do, no matter how powerful, is stay bought. In our time, we call this maxim path dependency or precedent or something of the sort, depending upon the forum. And, of course, we presuppose no dishonesty on the part of those whose minds are made up. But it often amounts to much the same thing as Robinson envisioned, insofar as the prospects for change are concerned. And yet, here is Congress in 2012 retreating from two bills the copyright industries had every reason to expect would pass 
and doing so, retreating that is, on the very day the Supreme Court is construing the Constitution to lay no constraints upon congressional action at all. The immediate consequences are notable. They give one some slight hope for a reversal of course, after all. But where do our prospects lie for reaching a meaningful outcome? I think, broadly speaking, there are three possible courses of action. One is to do nothing, that is, in the end, to treat the uprising of the netizens as having been a passing moment, in which event politicians and justices are likely to stay bought while studio executives return to Hollywood and Washington again, the crisis having passed. I wouldn't bet against that outcome, though I do hope for more. The second is to seek compromise, which is better than the outcome in Golan, and better than the intentions outlined in SOPA and PIPA. And the third is to embrace at last the response that I still believe to be inscribed in the Constitution. Jeff Powell and I suggest the nature of that response in the final chapter of our book. We propose that the First Amendment be read absolutely, in keeping with its first and most obvious meaning, that Congress shall make no law abridging freedom of speech or of the press by conferring monopolies in expression that otherwise would belong to the universe of discourses in which all are free to share and share alike. In at least this sense, no law should mean no law. This preceding program was brought to you by Suffolk University. Please visit us on the web at www.suffolk.edu.